0: So excited about this passage. Um, the power and the compassion of the king. Looking at chapter eight all the way through 9:13. You pray for me as I preach. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look into your word this morning, for the liberty that we enjoy in this nation, more than that as your children, for the liberty set free from sin set free to serve you with our lives oh lord that we might be people of compassion lord that we might be sharing the power of salvation with those that are around us that we might be a reflection of your grace in jesus name amen Establishing Jesus right to the throne, Matthew has given us his legal qualification from his genealogy, his prophetic qualification through the fulfillment of prophecy of his birth and infancy, his divine qualification by the Father's own testimony at his baptism, his spiritual qualification by his perfect resistance to Satan's temptation, and his theological qualification through the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, here in chapters 8 and 9, Matthew dramatically sets forth still another qualification, Jesus' divine power and his compassion. Because the question is, even if the king is able, does he care? There's an old gospel song, does Jesus care? Oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, 15 and 16, we have not a high priest which cannot be touched by the feelings of, of our infirmities. He was tempted in every point just like we are yet without sin. Therefore, you can come boldly to the throne of grace and find help in time of need. So let's begin to work our way through. When Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. And a leper came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, if you've studied anything about leprosy, you know what a terrible and deadly disease it is and was, especially in Jesus' day. It would begin as an infection, maybe arising on the skin, and then it would spread. And it was thought in the early days that the leprosy actually ate up the fingers and the bones and and the face. But actually what happens is it destroys the nervous system so you don't know that you're destroying yourself. It's such an amazing picture of the way sin is. The longer sin infects us, the less we feel it, but the more destruction it is to our bodies and to our spirits and our souls. And so God had set up A very strict system Now in our day, and they were saying, oh, it's so cruel. Somebody got leprosy, they had to be separated because it could be transmitted through the air by a cough or a sneeze. And so the lepers were told everywhere they go, they had to have their head uncovered, they had to cover their mouth, and when they got close to somebody, they had to yell, unclean, unclean, so people knew knew to stay away. J. Vernon McGee, in his commentary, talks about a scenario that might be a possibility: a man, this man, maybe coming from plowing the field, shows his wife there's a red spot on his hand, and and uh, so she puts some ointment on it, and they watch it, and after a while it doesn't go away. It seems like it's spreading, and the law says then you have to go see the priest, and he puts you in quarantine for a certain amount of period. Then he looks at it again. And then another period of quarantine. And then, if it doesn't go away, the priest pronounces sentence. You have to leave your family. So, I'm just going to go home and hug my wife and show no, I'm sorry, you can't do that. So, for the rest of that leper's life, he will not be touched again, he will not be close to his family. He has to live out away from everybody. And the most contact a leper would get was his family would come and bring him food, set it down on a rock, and then have to leave and be a ways away before the leper came and got his food. And they could speak from a distance, but no longer would anyone touch them. Many religious people had pride in the fact that they said whenever they saw a leper, they would throw stones at the leper to make sure that they got away. If they didn't see they were there, make sure they knew the healthy person was there. So it's an amazing thing that we see in this passage that large crowds were following Jesus, and yet this, this one has the courage to disobey everything that he knew that he was supposed to do to come to Jesus. God had opened his spiritual eyes to know that he was his only hope. He was the very bottom of all culture, thrown away by culture, condemned to a life of death and corruption all of his life. It is said that the smell of lepers is something that's very hard on the senses besides to look at them So people would just avoid them and stay away from them. But the amazing thing about this story is that the king comes. And if you can just imagine with me, he's going to steal home. The leper has to think about how will he get to Jesus with all the crowds there. And maybe... He sees Jesus coming down the mountain a certain way, so he says, well, I'll just I'll stay in this place. No one will notice me until he gets close, and then I'm going to rush the Savior. And the Bible says there, he came and bowed down before him. Actually, literally, he prostrated himself on the ground. If you can imagine, as he rushed toward the Savior, people realized, and the crowd just parted like water, and everyone got away. God had put it in this man's heart that the king was able to save and to heal. And I'm sure people were standing off in horror that this man would come so close to this great teacher. Didn't the teacher know the law? Why didn't he order the man to get away from him? And they realize, oh no, he's bending down. No, he's going to touch him. And Jesus says simply, I'm willing. Be thou cleansed. And he reaches down and he touches the, the unthinkable. He reaches down and he touches this man who hadn't been touched since he'd been declared a leper. It affects your voice, your face. And when Jesus heals, it's complete. And I'm sure this man stood up amazed, tears in his eyes, as he looked at his hands and everyone around him were amazed that this was a a man strong and clean and totally healthy. His face, his arms, his legs, his extremities returned to 100% health. And people were amazed. And then Jesus gives him instruction. Jesus wants to reach every city that he can. And as the crowds are growing, he can't get into the city. So he says to him, listen, you just do what the law tells you. Don't tell anyone. You go to the priest so he can declare you clean. And you can give the sacrifices. And that will be the testimony. But we read in the other accounts that he couldn't help himself. He went everywhere and declaring the power and the compassion of the king who was willing to touch a leper. And instead of the king being compromised or infected, the leper was cleansed. Verse 5. Seems that this is on the first day and wherever the mountain is, however far that is, Jesus is walking and the crowd is kind of pressing him and they finally get back to his hometown, Capernaum. And as he's there, if you read the other accounts, there's a Roman centurion. And the Roman centurion was a believer. He was a proselyte to the Jewish religion, but he was a serious believer. Seems that he'd built the synagogue there in Capernaum. And God has put in his hand, in His mind in his heart that this is the Messiah. And he probably has a little bit of the old mixed in with the new, and so he realizes he doesn't want to compromise the Messiah, but he understands that the king is a man of authority because he understands authority. And so he sends some of the elders of the synagogue to say, Listen, my servant, it seems like the servant must have fallen. If you have a King James's palsy, actually it's just... He is uh, um, without the ability to move. He's paralyzed. And he says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed in home. He's in great pain. So maybe in the course of his duties, an accident happened, maybe a horse. And now he's paralyzed. He's in fear of dying. But even though he loves his servant, which is uncharacteristic of Romans, he feels unworthy to speak to the Savior directly, but he is in possession of powerful faith. And so he talks to these officials of the synagogue, and they come to Jesus, and they say, this man is worthy. We know that none of us are worthy. But from their perspective, he'd been a faithful believer And so Jesus says, I'll come, and he begins to go that way. And just before he gets to the house, the centurion even feels bad about that. He sends a servant out and says, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come into my house, but I am a man under authority, and I understand. I say to somebody, go do this because I've got the power of Rome, and I recognize that in your life. But if you just say the word, my servant will be healed. Now, Jesus heard this, verse 10, and he marveled, and he said to those who are following, truly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. Now, remember, he's got people pressing around him, and he's got his own 12 there also. I've not found this kind of faith anywhere in Israel. You know, we see times where Jesus is almost discouraged when John 6, when he tells them, unless they eat of his flesh and drink of his blood. They can't be part of him and everybody goes away. You see his humanness because Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, I'm sure with sadness, are you gonna go away too? He does the miracle, he draws the crowd, then he gives them the message of salvation and the crowd melts away. He's always doing that. Finding out who really is lost. See, that's the key. God has to get somebody lost before you can see them come to salvation and only God can prepare that soil. But he's given us the powerful message of the gospel. And I'm sure when he hears this, Jesus' heart is encouraged because he knows he's not gonna reach this Israel but the gospel is gonna go to the ends of the earth. And he's so blessed by this. And he says, I say to you, verse 11, that many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Now, listen, folks, I want you to understand something. The fact that we as Gentiles have been, have been grafted in, we will not be second class citizens in the kingdom. It says here, we're going to sit down with all the patriarchs. We're part of it, we're one. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into utter darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, go, and it shall be done as you have been believed. And the servant was healed in that very moment. Don't you love testimonies? That's what what Matthew's doing. I think he's setting us up because at the end of this passage, when we come to verse 13, he's going to talk about his own call. I love sharing testimonies. I love sharing the testimony of this church. And when I share the testimony of the church, I, I talk about 34 years ago when we came and what it was like and what I thought and what I expected and what the people were like. And God began to change us as a congregation until on one Easter Sunday morning, a young man came who just wanted to be there because he thought there was a good-looking girl that was coming with him, and so they met on Easter Sunday. And after a couple of weeks, that young man came to Christ. And then I can tell you story after story of people that came to Christ over that next year. And go through the history of the 34 years and tell you the amazing stories. That's what Matthew's doing here. He's sharing God's power to change lives. On another day, Jesus had been ministering in the synagogue, and if you've been to the nation, to the land of Israel, you know that it's just, you know, half a block from the synagogue to Peter's house. In the synagogue, he's cast out a demon. He begins to minister, and then this this man begins to shout, What do we have to do? Have you come to destroy us? Just like the demoniacs in Gadara. He tells the demon to be quiet, and he casts the demon out, and people are amazed. And he gets up from church and he goes to peter's house and maybe peter has invited him for for lunch not knowing that his mother-in-law was sick with a fever things can happen so quickly there and he comes in if you read the other accounts people come to him and say she's sick and they love her and she's probably a believer also and the bible says he touched her hand Oh, that's the opposite we do with sick people. Oh, you're sick. Okay. And we back off, but not Jesus. He just touches her hand. And when Jesus heals someone, it's complete. It's complete. She gets up from her bed and somebody says, oh, you better better rest a little bit. She says, "No, no way. I am here to serve the Savior. And she begins to lay out the meal and serve. Demonstrating that when Jesus heals, it's complete. This was fulfilled, was spoken through the Isaiah the, the prophet. He himself took our infirmities and carried our diseases away because when they heard this, the crowd just increases and the whole city is at the door of Peter and he's casting out demons and he's healing everyone that comes. And he probably works late into the night Maybe to the point that the last one leaves early in the morning and the Bible says in the accounts that Jesus leaves and he goes to talk to the Father. How often do we say, well, I just don't have time to pray. We see the motivation, the strategy for Jesus' ministry in John 5, 19 and 20. It's so important you understand this so that in this day and age, you can be where Jesus wants you to work because that's where he's working. And Jesus kind of gives an explanation. I just work where the Father's working. Wherever He's working, that's where the Son works too. And so He goes to the Father to get the directions for the next day, just like you and I can do if we walk with Him in prayer. But our day and age, prayer is not important. It's what we can do, it's what we can get done. And yet, the Messiah went to the Father, He's our example. And he prays, and I think he gets directions. So the next day, he gets up, and he tells his disciples, we're going to go across the lake. And then we see these two fellas. I like to think of them as seminary students. You know, they're just graduated. They got the degree looking for a job. And the scribe, he thinks, uh, hey, I'm getting done on the ground floor. And the Lord is going to be so thankful to have a scribe. I mean, I'm educated. These fishermen, what can they do? And he sees an opportunity, he comes to the Lord. And he says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, Jesus knows his heart. See, Jesus had all the spiritual gifts. He's operating in the same opportunities that we have being filled with the Holy Spirit. He sees the motivation of this young man to just what he can get in the Lord says to him, "Hey, listen, you're not going to get much here. This isn't about getting more of the world. If you're in seminary, that's to get tools for where God's going to minister. It's not just to get a job, it's not to get a paycheck. How many people graduate? They say, "Well, wow, I'm going to hit the ground flying. That church that gets me is going to be so blessed right now, I'm telling you. And if God loves you, you hear the same thing from the Holy Spirit. That's not what this is about. I remember our buddy Brian, B.J. Johnson pastoring up in Thermopolis. He got to Southern Seminary, and that is the seminary when it comes to wealth and all the things that are, have been there for years, the Southern Baptist Convention, the halls, and the, the, it's just the very best. And he was listening at coffee time to some of his fellow students about how when they got a church, it was going to be this big, and they're going to make this much, and they're going to live in this kind of house. And B.J., a guy from Wyoming, thought, where in the world did I land? Because he thought, well, I'll probably go back to Wyoming. And if I pastor back there, I'll probably have to work a job. Because his heart was ministry. And Jesus, you know, he just cut the legs out from this young man. And I think Matthew's setting us up for him. He was there for what he could get. And so the next guy in line is thinking, oh, okay, well, I've got, I've got one for the Lord. And so he says, uh, Master, I'm going to be taken care of. So first permit me to bury my father, then I'll follow you. Let me let me take care of things. And Jesus looks at him and he says, You know, why don't you let the dead bury their own dead and follow me? Are you willing to just follow the Lord where he's leading you? Or do you have to make a deal? Well, Lord, if you do this, then I'll do this, kind of like Jacob did. Remember, Jacob has sets up an altar and he says, Now, Lord, if you, if you uh you know, you do what, what I need you to do, then I'll give you 10% of everything. Well, think about that now. The Lord owns everything. You're going to go to Vegas and say, Lord, I'm going to give you a if you make me win big at Vegas, I'm going to be good to you, Lord. If you make this business go, I'm going to be good to you. God already owns everything. He doesn't need you to give him anything. And why would he do that which destroys you or has the potential to destroy you? This young man, I'm sure, he went away with his tail between his legs. And they get into the boat and they start across the lake. And I think part of the reason, not only was Jesus on a mission to go to the Gentiles on the other side of the lake, but but he needed a break. He'd been up till late and then up early in the morning praying, and he was exhausted. You get the idea that maybe Jesus was just like a robot, he was God, so he just walked around and did things and it didn't affect him. No, no. The Bible calls him a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief and he was tired and he was exhausted. One time when Benjamin, my son, was a little boy, we, he just wanted to go hunting with my hunting buddy Larry Bach and I, and so we got up early and went over to the Red Desert in Rollins. We were hunting antelope all day and he had this, uh, Larry had this little flatbed truck. And poor little Benjamin, he was probably eight or nine years old. By the end of the day, he was just worn out. He said, I'll just, I'll just sit in back, Dad. And then we, we looked behind us, and his little head was just bouncing off. And I said, well, buddy, sleeping. You know what it's like to be exhausted. That's a great feeling, to be so exhausted. You could just fall asleep anywhere, and that's what happened to Jesus. And a storm comes up, and those storms can be violent. And these are experienced fishermen of this region. And they realize this is not going to end well. And I'm sure somebody said, listen, no, wait, let's just keep laboring. Let's keep rowing. And then finally they give up and they say, Lord, don't you care that we are about to die? The Lord gets up and it's so amazing because he just says, oh, you men of little faith. He just witnessed this great faith of this Roman centurion. And he he said, we're going to the other side. When Jesus says we're going to the other side, that's where we're going to go. We're going to get there. And then he just says a word. And the wind ceases and the waves are just like glass. And they say, what manner of this? What manner of man is this that even the waves and the wind obey him? And they they begin to row because the wind's not going to help them now because it's gone. And they realize where they're heading. Jesus said, yeah, just head to that point right over there. And the closer they get, the more we realize that they don't want to go there. Listen, this is not a huge area. You don't know what's going on. It's fresh from different parts of this this, uh, Sea of Galilee. And they're heading right towards the tombs there in Gadara. And the Bible says there, Two men who were demon-possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs, and they were extremely violent so that no one went this direction. Nobody came this way. And they've gone from one life-threatening situation right into another. And they're saying, I'm sure that you can imagine, Lord, don't, we, we, don't, we don't go there. Oh, no, here they come. Here they come. Oh, no, they're talking to him now. Lord, don't say anything. Let's just, and Jesus gets out. Oh, no, he's getting out of the boat. And I think they're probably holding back. Oh, this is not going to end well. Jesus is not only fearless, compassionate, but he's powerful, and he is Fearless. There may be some people in your life that you even have fear about sharing the gospel with. And and they have all these reasonings and they're so smart the way they're going to tear your testimony apart. I want you to know something. The king is not intimidated by anything. He called the worlds into existence. He's not afraid of these men. He loves these men. And they say, what do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? You come to destroy us. He just did not say anything. I'm sure he just smiles. And I wonder what his disciples are doing in the boat. Like, And the demons realize, okay, it's over. We can't terrorize them with these two anymore. He's going to make us go, hey, send us into the herd of pigs. Now, the other counts say there's 2,000 pigs. That's a lot of pigs. And the herdsmen taking care of these 2,000 pigs. The demons say, why don't you send us into the swine? And I'd never thought about this before, but think about 2,000 demon-possessed swine. They could do some havoc, right? The swine have more brains than a lot of humans. They'd rather be dead than be demon-possessed. He says, yes, go, and they leave the men and they enter the swine, and the swine violently get together, and they run right into the sea, and they're all drowned. Well, that's an economic disaster for the owner of the pigs. And so all the herdsmen run away. They're scared to death. What in the world is going on? And by the time the townspeople get back, they see these men clothed, seated at the feet of Jesus, and in their right Minds. Now, if you and I saw that, what would we say? Oh Jesus, please stay. No. Their economic loss. They were fearful. They didn't, they knew they couldn't control this this king, this, this simple man that came and sent the demons out, and they were afraid. And they implored him, please leave. Don't come back here again. The account in Mark 5 says, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring that he might go with him. Lord, I just want to follow you. He was serious. But Jesus did not let him, but he said to him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. Do you do that much? Do you tell the people around you? You're always waiting for an opportunity, but do you actually take the opportunity to tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you? You don't have to convince them of everything. Just tell them what God has done for you. So he gets back into the boat. They come back across the water To home, verse 2 of chapter 9, they bring to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And seeing their face, Jesus says to the paralytic, take courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. But he's doing that. Now, he could have said, take up your bed and walk. But the Pharisees are there and the the scribes are there and all the religious leaders. And he's going to make a point with them. Because they said, this man blasphemes. Who can forgive sin but God? Well, this is God. And That's why they're going to crucify him one day for what he claimed to be. And Jesus knows their thoughts. And he says in verse 5, Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he says to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed and go home. And he got up and he went home. But When the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God who had given such authority to men. Verse 9. Jesus gets up and the other counts. He begins to walk down by the shore. And I don't know, that's probably where Matthew must have had his tax booth set up to tax the fishermen. Which I'm sure Peter's thinking, what, what are you going to do now? And it says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew. Now in the account of Luke chapter seven, verses six and seven, it says, and I want you to hear this. Now Jesus started on his way with them. Excuse me. Luke five, 27 through 29. And after he went out, he noticed a tax collector. He noticed him. Have you ever wondered, does Jesus notice you? You're here this morning and you are outside of grace. You haven't received Christ as your Savior. And you think, well, I'm just going to live my life. Maybe you're here in all kinds of trouble as a believer. You've suffered loss of a friend, a loved one. You're in dire straits and... Like the psalmist, just say, no man cares for my soul. But Jesus, Jesus noticed Matthew. Now, Matthew's not a robot. When Jesus came by the disciples and called them, that wasn't the first time he met them. I think he'd seen Matthew on the edge of the crowd. God was drawing Matthew. And Jesus was just working where the Father was working. He'd been listening. Maybe one time when he was teaching, whether it was on the edge of the synagogue and the crowd at the edge, because they were rejected by all the religious people, he saw tears streaming down Matthew's face. So he comes to Playa, his work, and Matthew, I think, put that story in about the two seminarians because he thought, well, who's going to notice me? I'm hated by the religious people. And Jesus says to him simply, and this is Matthew's testimony. He noticed me, and he said, Follow me, Matthew. Now the two seminarians, they were They were thinking, first, I'm going to get on the bottom floor, and I'm going to have some power. That's the same thing the disciples were thinking, actually, later on. Oh, Lord, you're not going to die. You've got us. We're here. Let's get this kingdom thing going. The one says, Lord, I'll follow you as soon as I get all my affairs arranged so I can afford to follow you. And the Bible says there in Luke 5 that he got up, and he left everything. He was overwhelmed with the thought that Jesus would choose him. Jesus noticed me. He didn't give two thoughts. He just followed him. Not only that, but he thought, Lord, you got to come to my house. There's a lot of other people like me you need to meet. And so Matthew took Jesus to his house, and he threw a party Verse 29 of Luke chapter 5. Le- Levi gave a big reception for Jesus in his house. There was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. And here in Matthew, he says, Sinners, tax collectors, and sinners. The word is basically just secular Jews. Jew lies, when we think about Israel, sometimes you think about this land of everybody wearing the black coats and the black hats but almost half of the people that are Israelites in Israel are secular. And so, again, the critical on the edge ask of the disciples. They don't have the boldness to come and ask Jesus because they understand that they might get confronted like the other two did. And so they just say, "What? why? Why is your teacher eating with the tax collector's? And the secular Jews, those sinners, why is he eating with them? He touches lepers, he touches sick people, and he eats with sinners. And Jesus replies, he heard it. It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. And he gives us instruction for all of us. Go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. I did not come to call righteous, but sinners. The Greek word leo, to show kindness or concern for someone in serious need. When a person first comes to Christ, they really get saved. They're so excited, they tell their friends, and there's often kind of a mini harvest that goes on just over one person that gets saved. We've seen it happen over and over again. And then you know what happens? We get comfortable hanging out with the righteous, and we don't really want to be around the unrighteous anymore. With all of the so-called born-again people in the United States, why are as a nation are we still so wicked? because we've learned to be politically correct, I think. And we just talk about our faith when we're among the faithful. And Jesus gives instruction here. He said, I want you to learn something. I want you to be people of compassion. Do you want to be a person of power in the kingdom? It starts with being a person of compassion. The cares for the ungodly, the unlovely, the sick, the weak. To go and do what Jesus said, but we're so afraid we might lose reputation. Or just our own precious time wasted. And yet Jesus took all this time, as tired as he was, to go across and minister to two demoniacs, then come back, call a tax collector. I just can't imagine the disciples going, what what next? We're already having a hard enough time with a reputation. They know we're ignorant. Now you get a tax collector to be in the inner circle. What does it mean? Are you available? When you see needs around you, listen in Laramie, Wyoming. There are needs, aren't they? There are people that are hurting. And we tend, when we see people are hurting, be like the Pharisee, we see. Our brother or our sister or somebody has hurt it. We just kind of pick up our coats. Oh, I'll be praying for you. We see our neighbor who maybe has trouble with alcohol and his life's a mess. And so we just try to avoid him. So I was thinking about this myself and the conviction it brought to my own heart. How easy it is to just do your thing and not get distracted by any ministry that might be available. Because my time is important, right? i got to get my studies done, and i got to go to work, and then i got to be with family, and I, and I can't be distracted by some unlovely person. And maybe you feel like, I, so we all probably feel a little bit like the weird magnet that all the weird people are attracted to you, right? Maybe there's a reason for that. Maybe you have something you could share with them. But, but, Pastor, I can't change anybody. No, you can't. But you've been changed. You can tell that person what great things God has done for you. Or maybe just say to a hurting person, listen, could I pray for you? The greatest example in our church, and I'm not saying it's the only one, but my brother John Aaron Holtz. You know him and Billy, every Monday they go to the old folks' home. And Pastor Al said, you know, I, work, I ministered in old folks' homes for 40 years, over 40 years, and I've never seen the results that John and Billy have with the old folks. Because you know what John says to anybody he meets? He sees somebody hurting. He doesn't care who they are. He just says, hey, listen, can I pray for you? He puts, Can I just pray for you right now? You can't make somebody get saved. You can't talk, but you can pray for them. You can care for them. And not just to say, I'll be praying for you, but listen, could we, could we pray right now? Let me pray for you right now. Jesus said, I would have you learn not more religion, not just doing everything correctly. I would have you learn to care for people. Father, we thank you for your great love for us. For the compassion you showed, Lord, not just for the leper, but Lord for us. For us. And Lord, maybe there's someone sitting today that feels so unworthy of salvation. Oh Lord, I pray that you read out and touch their heart right now. Draw them to yourself. That you might give them the hope of salvation. They would cry out to, Lord, if you're willing, I know you can save me because, God, you're the one that can put that in their heart. And, Lord, make us a people of compassion. That as the king has taught us that we don't pass judgment, we just bring help. We'll give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and worship.